Before we begin our study tonight, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We're reading this weekend from the Parshat Noah, the Torah portion that describes the life of Noah, the flood, and many things that happened afterwards. And I wanna focus on a key idea that's introduced here, it's the idea of covenant, and I wanna build to that. The idea that God makes a covenant with with us, and he's not just a happy-go-lucky, casual God, he actually wants us to be in a firm relationship with him. And so we'll, we'll look at some issues about God's authority and, and human condition, the dilemma that we face, the mercy and the grace of the Lord, and the promises of the Lord that are reflected in his covenants. Well, I want to start in Genesis chapter 6 and look at verses 17 and 18. And as we're reading verse 17, I want to introduce a principle to you about Bible study and interpretation. The principle is this. Be careful with the conclusions that you reach from incomplete statements and incomplete study. And I'll show you uh, how this works. Let's look at verse 17. This is the Lord speaking. Then I myself will bring the flood of water over the earth to destroy from under heaven every living thing that breathes. Say that with me every living thing that breathes, everything on earth will be destroyed. Say that with me. Everything on earth will be destroyed. Okay, so let's just stop there and let's jump to conclusions, okay? You know what jumping to conclusions means? It means you arrive at a conclusion before you've actually gotten to the end of a matter. So you're jumping to the conclusion. You're reaching a conclusion without all the information. You've got some of the information. Now this information that we've just read seems to be very uh, thorough because it uses the word every. Every living thing that breathes will be destroyed. Okay, so that suggests, it doesn't suggest, that declares that all living things Anything that has breath is going to be destroyed, right? And then it says everything on earth will be destroyed. So that means everything on earth will be destroyed. Simple reading, right? And if you reach that conclusion, then you made a mistake. And it's not because that's not what the words said. It's because that's not all that has to be said in order to explain the situation. So we just read it as if it were a complete statement, and the wrong conclusion that you had come to is that every living thing in the whole earth will be destroyed. It seems to say it pretty plainly though, doesn't it? But now let's read verse 18. I like the way it starts, but. You know, that means there's an exception. 
but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. You will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Okay, now how does verse 18 change the meaning of verse 17? It gives us an exception. Under every case, everyone's gonna be destroyed, except you. If you only read verse 17, you could reach a conclusion that all humanity is going to be destroyed and even more than that, right? This is one of the mistakes that people make. They draw conclusions too soon without all the information. It's better to have a lot of information from the scriptures than just a little bit. Many people come to uh, wrong conclusions that they can defend from one single proof text that they have found. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's a wrong thing to do. You reach wrong conclusions. Let's say you're Noah and you stop paying attention after God makes the first statement. What does that mean to you? It's like, I'm done. It's over. I give up. What's the point? If Noah gives up, no ark, no rescue, then everything's fulfilled according to verse 17, right? Literally. But let's say you wait to get the rest of the information. That's helpful, isn't it, for Noah? It's helpful for us. You see, God knew that he needed to do something drastic, that there was such violence and such evil on the face of the earth, it had gotten to so, uh, such a degree and it was so widespread that the only cure was to find those who were still faithful to God and trusting in the Lord and to remove everybody else. And all he found was Noah and his family. That's all he found. So he started afresh with them. It was a new beginning. You know, I love when we roll the scroll back and we start reading from Genesis one more time because it reminds us that God gives us opportunities for new seasons and new beginnings. He doesn't erase everything. He enables us to, uh, to revisit some things and to extract the good and then to go forward with that. And in a sense, this is a new beginning like that. The Lord is saying, I'm gonna take what good there is and I'm gonna work with it. But you will find sometimes, if you are a consistent student of the scriptures, that you had been taught or reached conclusions that were faulty because they were based on incomplete teachings of the scriptures. This can lead to no end of troubles. It can cause many different problems for us. But I thought, good for us that we're starting. It's the second reading of the year. Let us prepare ourselves for further study. We will find that it's really useful to learn a lot about the scriptures. One of the ways that you can learn about a topic is to read everything the Bible has to say about that topic, and then to reach conclusions. It's a great way of studying. 
So that's, that's something that you can be aware of and you can move forward. But the Lord is, is teaching us through the story of Noah that it's important to hold on to God long enough for him to finish saying what he's trying to say to us. Don't just grab a hold of a little bit of what he says and try to run with it. Get enough of his message that you can actually use it. Now let's continue. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. This is an important idea. Covenant has not been introduced as a concept earlier in the scriptures, though it was understood at the time to, to mean something. If, uh, if you wanted to buy a house, and I don't know what, what's the median selling price of a house in, in this area. A couple of hundred thousand. Let's just pick that as a number for now. Do you think someone would sell you the house and a bank would give you a mortgage without any paperwork whatsoever? They used to. That's right, and if you want to go back in time, you can buy one of those houses from one of those banks. If you are going to make that kind of commitment, there is going to be obligation to it. There's going to be commitment to it. You have to get qualified, right? Do you have the means to purchase this and to make the payments? and so forth and so on. Now as a buyer, you'll be doing something similar. You wanna know that the person who says they are the owner is the actual owner, that they can convey good title to you. There was a point where Sandy and I were living in Budapest, Hungary, and we thought, well maybe since we've moved overseas and we'd never planned to come back to America, we should buy a house there. But we found out something that alarmed us and actually kept us from doing that. We found that their system for uh, recording titles was faulty. That sometimes it could take months before uh, a, a sale would actually be recorded. And so what that meant is there were people who would sell the same house two or three times. Yeah, it was a common criminal activity. And so you could buy a house and then find out you are not the true owner of the house. Well, you and several other people are now the owner, but actually not. So it turns out that you really wanna know is the person who's conveying something to you in a position to actually convey it. Is, is there a lien, is there a fault in the title, is there some kind of flaw that you need to be aware of? Do they have the right to sell this? So it's two-sided, do you get that? And that's a, that's a normal thing, we all understand it. I mean, you, you, can, you can't even get a contract with AT&T for an iPhone without having lots of paperwork. You can't even download a 99-cent app without a lot of terms and conditions. But let's be honest, how many of us just scroll through them and we accept it and it's like, yeah, whatever. 
you know, how much can they do to me for 99 cents? You'd be surprised. But there are so many transactions that require clarity in terms and conditions. The Lord is saying to Noah, I'm entering into a covenant with you, not a casual agreement, but a covenant. And it has two parties, you and me. And the Lord makes promises. This idea of covenant will be a recurring topic and it will help us understand the scriptures and the development of history, the progress of history, up to and including the coming of Messiah. Now there are people today who, who believe in Jesus, but they've not made a covenant with him. But the promise of Messiah is a fulfillment of God's promise in Jeremiah 31 to make a new covenant. New covenant, let's say that again. New covenant, a new covenant. It could be a renewed covenant, that's another way, a refreshed covenant, an updated covenant. I'll update the covenant, the Lord's saying. But what is it? It's a covenant. It's not casual. It's not free either. It's given to you freely, but it will cost you everything. Right? How much of your heart does God want? <laughs> Pretty thorough. How much of your mind does he want? <laughs> yeah, all of it. And so forth. He wants all, right? And he's serious about that. It's a covenant after all. How many people are happily married in the room? Those of you that aren't, you know. <laughs> you can be. It'll just cost you everything. But you know what, when, when people get married, you know what they expect? I want all your heart. I don't want you to be looking at other women, I don't want you to be falling in love with other people. It's a two-way street, right? Men and women both expect this and want this. And it's a reasonable thing. It's a good thing. In other words, when we make, when we make a decision to get married, we're actually entering into a covenant too that has real expectations and real boundaries to it. So this idea of covenant is not a strange thing, it's a very familiar thing. It's a serious commitment, and it's a, a serious agreement. And it is to be part of the foundations of the normal life that we live. Now let's move to Genesis chapter eight, verse 22. Because I want to, uh, I want to describe to you an idea of the renewal of the earth and of humanity that goes along with this. It's a really important idea, even though it's expressed in these wonderful and concrete ways. It says this, so long as the earth exists, sowing time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night, 
will not cease. It's a picture of normalcy. The Lord is saying, things have gotten so strange, I have to do an extreme act of cleansing in order to renew. But after I've done that, here's where I'm headed. I want things to stabilize and be normal. I I want you to sow and to reap. I want you to experience the times and the seasons. Be prepared to live in cold and in heat. I want you to understand there will be daytime, there will be nighttime. In other words, we're not throwing out normalcy, we're getting back to normalcy. It's an important idea because sometimes when life is unstable or uncertain, people forget what normalcy even looks like. And they stop hoping for or working for normalcy and they're looking for something that's, that's chaotic or unsustainable. So here the Lord is introducing an idea about renewal and a new beginning. And it's a new beginning that enables people to start again, but to hold on to God's continuing purposes. And to understand we're not being translated into a whole new universe. We are being given an opportunity to start again in order to fulfill what God has in mind already. Now there are several things that the Lord understands that mankind needs to learn about how we should live. And I'll just uh, name some of them. We need to learn how to live together. We need to learn how to live in family. We need to learn how to live in marriage. We need to learn how to live with siblings. We need to learn how to live with children. We need to learn how to live in society. We need to learn how to live as nations, and we need to learn how to live as nations together, different nations together. All of this, depends on learning from God how to live. This is one of the most foundational ideas. God starts again with Noah and his family and he's saying to humanity, let's try one more time. Here's what you need. You need me. And I want you to be successful, but you need me. You can't do it on your own. You'll make a mess of it. Try as hard as you will, if you try to do it without me, no matter how much you think you can, no matter how competent you are, how experienced you are, you will not be able to live a godly life, a good life. So the Lord is saying that we need to learn how to live with him and we need to learn how to live with others. The New Testament scriptures are really clear that religious folks sometimes want to focus on living with God, but not living with people. Loving God and having no regard for other people. And we have to learn how to embrace God and people. Now let's continue in chapter 9. Verses eight through 13. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him 
And he said, as for me, I am herewith establishing my covenant with you. It sounds like legal terms. With your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, and every wild animal with you. All going out of the ark, every animal on earth. In other words, every animal you've been involved in saving, I'm making a covenant with. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? That God does not limit his covenant just to humans, but he actually extends it to the other living creatures as well. Which, if I remember right, included clean and unclean animals. Then verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you so that never again will all living beings be destroyed by the waters of a flood, and there will never again be a flood to destroy the whole earth. Now that's an interesting idea. Again, it says all living beings destroyed. It won't happen again. But all living beings were not destroyed. So if you use all to mean every without exception, that's not what happened. But the Lord is making a commitment. He's making a promise. He's actually entering into a covenant and he's saying, I'll do this myself. I will not use a flood to destroy the whole earth and all of humanity, even with exceptions, with a few exceptions. I'm not gonna do that. Verse 12, God added, here's the sign of the covenant I'm making between myself and you and every living creature with you for all generations to come. I'm putting my rainbow in the cloud. It will be there as a sign of the covenant between myself and the earth. It's an interesting idea. I don't know about you, but when I see a rainbow, it makes me happy. And I do not expect to find a leprechaun somewhere at the end and a pot of gold somewhere. And when I see a double rainbow, I think it makes me quadruple happy, not double happy. It has this cheering effect on me. And part of it is just aesthetic. I think it's pretty and interesting. But there's another part to it. It reminds me that God has made a promise. And he said, I'm watching, I'm involved, even when it rains, how about I send you my sign that I'm taking note of? That encourages me. It encourages me to think about this. God loves beauty, and he even loves sparkly things. Sparklers. <laughs> Not sparklers, yes. I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson too late. But the Lord is a God who creates, but he creates beautifully as well. And he's also, how can I put this? God's basically in a good mood most of the time. You need to know that because if you've, if you've got this view that God is always angry, he's ticked off at everybody, and if you wanna be like God, you should be an angry person, then you will have a wrong view. When you show a little child a rainbow, you know, usually they smile. That's the normal reaction, right? 
it has this cheering effect on the human soul. I think God designed it that way. And you can analyze it scientifically and maybe think of it a whole other way, but I like to pay attention to the emotion and the aesthetic of it because the Lord says it's a sign that I'm giving you about a promise I've made about how I'm going to work on the face of the earth. And I want you, every time you see that sign, to remember this. The rain came and the floods did not destroy the whole earth. They came, they watered the earth, and yes, there may be local flood destruction in this broken earth, but it is not the plan of God to just send so much rain and such a flood that the whole earth is enveloped and destroyed. It's important for us to grasp that. Now let's move to uh, Genesis chapter nine, verses 20 and 21. I'm just sort of picking out pieces from this absolutely wonderful uh, Torah portion. This caught my attention. Noah, a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. That has a good side. He's the originator, right? All other vineyards were just sort of natural, right? You come across some vines, some grapes. This was a planted and cultivated Vineyard. Okay, so he's an originator, right? He's creative, he's innovative, he takes initiative, he does something no one else has ever done. Verse 21. This is the comment on his uh, initiative. He drank so much of the wine that he got drunk and lay naked and uncovered in his tent. And then things go poorly. So there's a lesson here. The lesson is this. Um, new experiences are wonderful, but they're built upon inexperience. And there's a lot to learn. What did Noah have to learn? Don't get drunk. Well, how do you know how much you can drink without getting drunk? Noah found out by crossing the line. Some people learn all their lessons by crossing the line and then saying, oh, that was too much. But there's a lesson here. When you're, when you're participating in something you haven't done before, you have to learn about that thing. He learned how to plant, right? He learned how to harvest, right? He learned how to press grapes, he learned how to store it and age it. But what he did not know how to do was how to limit his drinking. He was inexperienced. And he made some mistakes. It cost him some problems. It cost his family a lot. It's a good lesson for us. Don't drink so much that you get drunk. Don't do it. My family my good Jewish family taught me something that 
that was very useful, it just wasn't true. Here, here's what they taught me. Jews don't get drunk, only Gentiles do. And so I thought, okay, so we would never get drunk, because we're Jews. Um, so who's getting drunk? The Gentiles, right. And that put inside of me like this sense, as a Jew, I would not do that. My parents had alcohol, they weren't afraid of it. They weren't afraid that we were gonna sneak it and drink it. Um, they knew we wouldn't get drunk. They knew it. My mother wasn't capable of drinking very much. At Passover, if she drank even half a glass of wine, she fell right to sleep. She didn't get drunk, she just started snoring during the Seder. And so she learned, okay, <laughs> that will not work. It turned out that Jews do get drunk. It turns out that not all Gentiles get drunk and not all Jews are sober. There are Jewish alcoholics, and there are Gentiles who are very capable of managing their consumption or abstaining or whatever they choose to do. It's not, a, it's not something that's, that was accurately conveyed to me. It worked to develop like this initial sense of moral patterning, but it wasn't real. Now, how do I know it's real? I have Jewish relatives who get drunk. They like to get together and party. And sometimes I'm shocked by their behavior. And I'm thinking, my mother would croak <laughs> if she saw this with them. Uh, and they probably wouldn't do it in front of her. If you take this uh, a step away from wine and alcohol and anything like that and just relate this to new experience, it can be really useful. When I'm starting something, I don't know everything that I need to know. I haven't learned everything that I need to learn. When we were doing outreaches in the former Soviet Union, unprecedented scale of messianic outreaches, outreaches to the Jewish people in former communist countries, we would make many, many contingency plans. Well, if this happens, this is what we'll do. And if this happens, this is what we're gonna do. And then inevitably, something would happen that we hadn't anticipated. And so we came to say, our plan is to make contingency plans for everything except for what actually happens. And we were constantly surprised. It's like, well, we were ready for all this, and then some terrorists you know, came with you know, bombs. Like, well, who was prepared for that? We weren't. When you're doing new things, it's really useful to say, I'm learning all about this. I don't even know the basics. I don't even know what success and failure looks like yet. I don't know what the risks or the dangers are. And of course, you can, you can study and you can pre prepare, prepare and learn and talk to other people and get lots of counsel, and that can 
give you a margin of safety, it's true. But you cannot eliminate the, the troubles that are caused by inexperience. I don't yet have the experience to do what I need to do. And so I have to learn, and it will take time. And that enables us to be humble about ourselves and about our situations, and to be gracious as well, and to say, you know what, I'm gonna make mistakes. And I won't know I made the mistake until after I made the mistake. And someone tells me this was a mistake. It also helps us be gracious towards other people when we recognize that they're doing things that they don't have experience in, and so they also are making mistakes. So what do we do? We can say, wow, I want people to be gracious to me, I'll be gracious to them. It's a very helpful way to live. And it eliminates a lot of the tension that comes from perfectionism. Now, a lot of people like to do a good job. I like to do a good job. Anybody else here like to do a good job? I appreciate all of you whose hands went up and the rest of you, God can heal you <laughs> and help you and one day you too can learn how valuable it is to do. But perfectionism is not the same as conscientiousness or skill because we can be perfectionists and actually not very good at what we're doing, but we think we are. And we can also torment ourselves with perfectionism because we set goals that are unachievable and they can demotivate us rather than motivate us. So when we learn from Noah, we learn not as a critic of Noah and not from a distance, but by putting ourselves in his shoes, in his vineyard, drinking his wine and getting into his trouble and saying, that's my story. That's my problem. So as we're reading these stories, it's to help us gain a sense of life, how to live, how to live together, what are the challenges. Many families have challenges living together because of alcohol, because of drugs, uh, mental health. Many families have difficulty living together because of a lack of cheerfulness. They're just angry all the time. And many families have difficulty living together because of a lack of forgiveness. Uh, taking a bitter root and allowing it to grow rather than showing grace and kindness to one another. Uh, many families fail because of a lack of repentance, a lack of even contrition of saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry. We have to learn from these stories, how, how to position our hearts and our minds, how, how to think about one another, how to be gracious to one another. And one of the ways that we can do that is by imagining if the way we're treating people is how they're treating, will treat us, or if the way we're treating people is how God will treat us. Imagine that. So God is looking for covenant. He's, he makes promises, he makes commitments, he gives explicit terms and he gives signs as well, but he also expects the same from us because it's a two-sided relationship. 
He made covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Israel. He made covenant at Sinai. He made covenant with David and with David's descendants. And then he made the promise of a new covenant and then he fulfilled the new covenant. To walk with Yeshua, to have life with God, requires that we learn the history of these covenants and that we learn how to live in a covenant relationship with God and how to be covenantly faithful to God in our families, in our lives together, in a matter of attitude. It's not just by making you know, grand commitments to each other, trying to be superheroes. When I was a new believer, I was with a group of people who thought every believer should make a covenant in their congregation and be covenantal members. And the whole thing turned out to be a mess. And after all of that, you know what I concluded? I'd just be happy if people were normal. (laughs) And if people could just talk straight and be nice, work through differences, be patient with each other, tell the truth, process things with generosity of spirit and and do your best not to overlook things that really need to be fixed. If we could just be normal, it would be like heaven on earth. And so I came to the conclusion, forget some of these high and mighty concepts. Let's just try to be brothers and sisters who act kindly towards each other and be a healthy family. I would be satisfied with that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the life of Noah and I thank you that you were able to discern the difference between Noah and everyone in his generation. Thank you, Lord, that you preserved for us a man and his family to teach us something about the power of one and the family together and to teach us something about your faithfulness and the ways that you work in order to renew and restore. And I pray that we could take the life of Noah to heart and that he could be uh, such an example for us, that we could learn, we could learn how to be useful to you, how to be faithful to you, and that we could be a blessing even to our own generation. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. We're gonna close with Aaron's blessing. And I invite you to stand up. If you are standing by yourself, just move a little bit. Or if you have someone like Derek, he moves too. Thank you, Derek. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.